0: This morning we're going to be starting a new series, How We Got Here. I've been looking forward to this series ever since June when I I started planning for this series. This is uh, an essential part of your knowledge of Scripture. It's what we're going to look at in these first 11 chapters of Genesis. Last year, after our Easter services, I preached through a series called How to Change Your World in Just 20 Minutes a Day. During that series, I was aiming to strengthen your trust in the Bible and to encourage you to spend time regularly reading your Bible. During that series, I told you over and over again that the Bible is many stories telling one big story, and that story is a story of God rescuing people like you and me. You remember that phrase? I said it many times. I grew up in church. I was I came to a saving knowledge of Jesus in the second grade during our church's vacation Bible school. I was very involved in the student ministry of my church. I followed God's calling into ministry while I was in college. I was in the Bible an awful lot growing up. It was, it was part of my life. I taught the Bible as a teenager to my peers in the student ministry, and I really haven't stopped teaching the Bible since high school. But I missed one key piece Of the Bible through most of that teaching. I wasn't taught it. I didn't pick it up. I didn't even know to be looking for it. It wasn't until my daughters were involved in kids ministry in a church that has a curriculum much like the curriculum that we have here called the Gospel Project. Until my kids were in kids ministry, I thought, like many of us probably think, that the Bible is many unrelated, or very loosely connected stories. Are you like that? It's okay, I'm kind of counting on some of y'all being that way. Do you think that the Bible is kind of like watching all the college football bowl games over the holidays? They're playing the same game, they're playing football, but, but they, don't, they don't matter to each other. Whoever wins one game doesn't affect the winner of the other games. Do you see the Bible... Kind of like that. When you read about David and Goliath, do you see that as a separate story apart apart from what you read about in the Exodus story, or what you read about in Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead in the Gospels? Do you see those as three disconnected stories, or do you see those as connected accounts telling a bigger story about God and how he, he intervenes in the lives of humanity? The Bible is many stories telling one big story. That story tells us of God rescuing people like you and me. But why? Why does he do it? Why does God rescue us? You may be thinking, because we need to be rescued, and you're right. I understand sin and our need to be rescued, but but why Maybe you've asked yourself, why would God save you? Why does God save anyone? This is another thing that I wasn't fully taught growing up in the church. Why does God save anybody? Sure, God loves us. That is absolutely true. God loves you. God loves me. John 3.16 points us to God's love for us and ultimately in Christ's work on the cross. But for what purpose are we saved? Why does God save any of us? Why does God even create? Why did God create? Why did he create humanity? Why did God go through all the effort of the second person of the Trinity taking on flesh, becoming incarnate, the Christmas story, spending 33 years in ministry alive on earth just to be brutally murdered and resurrected, the Easter story? Why would God do that? Is it only because he loves us? Or is there something more? I think for the most part we get that God loves us. Sometimes we may struggle with what all that means that God loves us, but we've heard it, most of us, over and over again. We've read it in our Bibles. We get it. God loves us. We're thankful for it. It's praiseworthy to to say that, to recognize that God loves us. But if we think that God did all of that, From Christmas to 33 years of life and ministry to Easter, only because he loves us, then we can be left to think that we are the central focus of God. Are we the central focus of God? This morning, I hope to show you that of all of creation, you are special. You are very special. You are an object of God's love. But does that mean that we are the central focus of God? No. No, I would say that God is the central focus of God. Now, why would I say that? Before I answer this, let's look at Genesis 1-1 this morning. This is going to be our central focus this morning as we study God's Word. You don't have to open up your Bible very far to find it. It should be near the very front. Genesis 1.1 says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You might have that one memorized. That would be a good one to memorize. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is an essential verse to understand, to recognize in the storyline of the Bible. It is the best way to open up a book from God to his creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It speaks volumes of who God is, what he did, and what he does. Let's pray in response to what we just read in Genesis 1 1. God, you are eternal. You have eternally existed. You have always existed. Even before time began, you were. You are creative. You have created everything. Everything we see on earth, everything we see in the universe, and even the things we cannot see in the universe, you created. You are a wonderful creator. God, because you are the creator, you reign over heaven and earth. You are our ruler You are king. You are supreme. Forgive us when we forget that. God, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for Jesus. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So God is the central focus of God. So why do I say that? One reason is because God has always existed in eternity past. We haven't. Humanity has not. We are created. Before God created humanity, God is still a loving God. Even before he created, he is still a loving God because God's nature doesn't change. James 1.17 says this, Every good gift, every perfect gift, is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Hebrews 13.8 attributes the same thing to Jesus. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. God's nature doesn't change. There is no variation in God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God's nature doesn't change. God must have been a loving God before he created. If God was a loving God before creation, who or what was the object of his love? God has always existed, and he has always existed as Trinity. John 1.1 helps us to understand this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If God has existed in eternity past, he must have been and must be the object of his love. Specifically, God the Son And God the Spirit has always been the object of God's love. God the Father and God the Spirit has always been the object of God the Son's love. God the Father and God the Son have always been the object of God the Spirit's love. 1 John 4.16 tells us that God is love. God has always been love. Before God created anything, God is love. The truthfulness of an eternal Trinity is the essence of love. God is not like us. When I became a father, a whole lot of me changed. My title changed. Love grew in me for my daughters, a love that wasn't fully there before I became a father. My responsibilities changed, my hopes changed, but not so with God. When he created, nothing in him changed. God doesn't change. He didn't become love after he created. God has always been love. God loves us, and because of that love, he wants the best for us. He knows that he is the best thing for us. And if he is the best thing for us, he is the best thing. God's central focus, the focus that everything else flows from is himself. So there must be something more to God's interaction with creation than just his love for us. Again, I am not negating any love that God has for us. God absolutely loves us. He loves you very much. Over our Christmas series, I said something else to you. God created humanity to do holy work alongside God. You you and I, along with all of humanity, were created by God for a purpose. In your notes, you were created to be loved by God and to do holy work alongside God. Think through that statement for just a moment. You were created to be loved by God and to do holy work alongside him. I have said a whole lot these past 10 or 15 minutes, and you may be struggling with some of it. That's okay. When I first wrestled through these truths, I was skeptical. I resisted. I struggled. I realize that I am also being a bit philosophical this morning, perhaps a little too heady for some. But this truth is foundational to everything else in the Bible. This truth is foundational to everything else in your Christian life, your Christian faith. You were created to be loved by God, but not only that, you were created to do holy work alongside him. Now, if you only get one part of this statement, you won't fully get the rest of the Bible. You won't fully understand that full life that's promised to you in John 10.10. Both parts are important. This is a bit heady. It is a bit philosophical this morning. It is that way because we're looking at the very beginning of things. Genesis 1:1 deals with the beginning of our existence, which is a bit philosophical. Genesis was written to the people of Israel to strengthen their faith. This would be extremely helpful for them when they become part, of, they're in the Babylonian exile. They are in a foreign land, and that culture, not unlike our own today, was saying to them that their God is weak. They were saying the Babylonian gods were bigger, that they were better than the Hebrew God. Our culture today says something very similar. It says that our God is weak. Our culture will say that they have outgrown our God. Our culture may not have gods like the Babylonian gods, but our culture appeals to relativism, humanism, and postmodernism as outgrowing a need for God. The world around us says our God is weak. The first seven Hebrew words of Genesis say, no, he isn't. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1 says that our God is supremely powerful. He is not weak. He is the most powerful. In the beginning, our God was. Our God has existed from eternity past, and before God created anything, the Babylonian gods were not anything. Our God has always existed. Genesis is written for you to know that despite our culture's denial of God. God has always existed and he created everything. The Gospel of John reiterates this and points us to Jesus in the beginning. John 1, 3 says, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Nothing that was created, nothing that was ever created did not have God's Creative, atta- creative work attached to it, nothing. Everything passed through God's creative work. When the world says their views of science, philosophy, and whatever else have outgrown God, they are mistaken. God created everything. He is the creator, creator and we cannot outgrow our creator not only are they mistaken, the Bible says they are fools who say this. Psalm 14, 1 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. This book, your Bible, says only a fool says there is no God. Only a fool says they have outgrown God. This is what the Hebrew people were dealing with as the Babylonians held them in exile and told them over and over again that the Babylonian gods were stronger. The Babylonians are fools. The problem is, then, as it is today, when we are told something over and over again, even if we tell it to ourselves, we tend to start to believe it. This is why Genesis came about. It came about to strengthen the faith of those who are possibly losing their faith. If you find yourself struggling with the Christian faith, turn to the first parts of Genesis. Genesis 1 to 11 is there to strengthen your faith. It tells you about your God, things you might have forgotten or you might have ignored because the world tells you something else. Genesis has 50 chapters in it. It's a big book. And it's a unique book. It's different than any other book in the Bible. In Genesis, you have a story about God zooming out as far out as you can zoom. Creating everything. God created everything. You can't get much bigger than that. Then the very next chapter, in chapter 2, you have Genesis zooming in to one man alone in a garden. In Genesis, you have that. You have a zoom out, zoom in, zoom out, zoom in. And that explains a lot of the the things that are happening in Genesis. Many Christians have tried to put Genesis in a genre box, saying it's history. Others will say that Genesis is science. Still others will say it's myth. Skeptics will say it's fantasy. Have you given Genesis a genre label? It's okay to say, I don't know. That might be the best label to actually give it because Genesis does give us history, it does give us a framework to do science. Genesis tells us the story of our beginning much like a myth, and it says some fantastic things, but we rest in its truthfulness because it is the very words from God given to us to strengthen our faith. Genesis gives us the foundations of a theological framework that ultimately points us to Christ within the first three chapters. It's not a complete theology, but it is, the, it is the framework of a theology pointing us to Jesus. Genesis is really two parts, and we're only going to be looking at the first part. Genesis 1 through 11 forms an introduction to the rest of the Bible, and that's what we're going to focus on over the next few weeks. We could is, easily spend a year in just these 11 chapters. We won't. We'll go through some, some things fast, one of the things that we're going to have to go through fast is the thing that chapter 1 spends the most amount of time in, and that's the creation account, the creation order. Now, this section of Genesis 1 and 2 are perhaps some of the most debated and polarizing passages of the Old Testament. You are probably on one side of the, the debate. On one side, you have young earth creationists who take six days as six literal 24-hour periods. You work up the math and the genealogies of the Bible, and you come up with a fairly young earth of anywhere from six to 8,000 years. If this is you, we can be friends. Now, some of you may also fall into the other camp. Of old earth creationists, who take the six days in Genesis 1 as perhaps six very lengthy periods of times or epochs, you believe that the Bible you believe the Bible, but you also process it through what you observe, and you observe old things. It seems like things must be older than six to 8,000 years. Perhaps even very old of millions or billions of years. If you're an old earth creationist, we can also be friends. Both of these views take the Bible and attempt to process it with very limited knowledge and limited ability. Young earth creationists need to understand that the genealogies in the Bible are not there to give us a date for creation. The genealogies in the Bible are there to point us to Jesus, to give us his family tree, a connection of the promise made to the promise kept. That's the purpose of the genealogies. Old earth creationists need to understand that What is now and how it is now isn't necessarily how it's always been. The way we observe changes currently in nature or in the universe may not, and probably not, are not the way it's always acted that way. So, what does this creation account in Genesis 1 tell us? It tells us that God created everything. And that's good enough. He created it orderly and he created it in a way that humanity is special. That you and I are unique in his creation. In your notes there, I've given you the seven days of creation. Day one, light. Day two, the sky. Day three, the land and plant life. Day four, the sun, moon, stars and other lights in the universe. Day five, bird and sea life. And day six, animal, and ultimately human life. In verse 1 and 2, we have God creating everything out of nothing. He didn't use anything to create everything. We're zoomed out in verse 1. As far out as we could get, creating the universe. Then in verse 2, we're zoomed in on earth, where God creates everything on earth. Then in verses 3 through 31, we have an orderly creation culminating in God creating humanity in his image. Let's focus on that sixth day of creation. Genesis 1, 26 through 30. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and of the, over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth. that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has br- the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. This is the last day of creation. God has been saving the best for last humanity, both male and female. Humanity is created in the image of God. That is to say, we are imagers of God. God's purpose for us in creation is to do holy work alongside God. As imagers of God, we are to do work that God does with him. Kind of like a family business. We are not God. We do not become a God. But as an imager of God, we are meant to do holy work alongside, with God. We get a glimpse of this in verse 26, where God is saying, let us make man in our image. Let us make man in our image. Who is God talking to here? I was telling our Wednesday night class, Genesis 1 is harder than it may should be, but it is, there are difficult things here in Genesis 1. And this is one of them. Who is God talking to when he says, let us make man in our image? There's at least two options to consider. If you were in the Invisible invisible Creation class last year, you know that there are at least two options. The first option is that God is talking with the other persons of the Trinity. If this is true, we get our first hint of a triune God in Genesis 1. And this might be the case. This might be true. For many reasons, though too many for me to bring up here this morning, I believe that God is speaking to the second option. And the second option is this, that God is speaking to a group of created beings in the spiritual realm. Now we're going to get to know this group later in this series, and I'll be able to speak more about why I think God is speaking to this group. As he says, let us make God in our image. We'll come to know this group as the sons of God or the divine council. This is a group of newly created beings by God who are with God in the heavens. And they are watching him create. They are not creating anything. They are just sort of there, watching, getting to know the God that just created them. Perhaps they're beginning to live out a similar purpose of doing holy work alongside God. If it's not this group then it's the Trinity. Either one. It has to be one of those more than likely. But I wanted to bring up the sons of God and the divine council because we will start to see them interact in Genesis in the coming weeks. We'll see one of them in the garden with Adam and Eve. We'll see them right before the flood. We'll see God do work at the tower according to the number of the sons of God. The sons of God are real and are very active in the first parts of Genesis. But as real as they are and as active as they are, they are not the pinnacle of creation. That's the way the Gospel Transformation Bible puts it. Humanity is the pinnacle of creation. As the pinnacle of creation, you and I, along with the rest of all humanity, past, present, and future, are created to do holy work alongside God. We'll get to more of this next week in, in uh, the Garden of Eden, but we see the responsibility already being given to humanity here in Genesis 1. This newly created humanity is given dominion over all the other things that have just been created on earth. God created everything, and he's now giving control, he's giving dominion, he's giving power, over to humanity. Now God doesn't just create and hand over power and leave. We see that God is with them in the garden next week. As we close this morning, I hope that you see how important this first book of the Bible is. How, how important it is to understand it. Understanding your purpose on earth is found in its pages. Each one of us has a purpose given by God. You are not an accident. You are not a mistake. God created you with a purpose in mind. Part of the purpose is to do holy work alongside him. And we can easily get confused and frustrated with realizing that purpose because of our sin. Sin separates us from God it separates us from being able to live out that God-given purpose of doing holy work alongside Him, the purpose that we were created for. In our sin, we cannot do holy work. In our sin, we cannot even be near God. This will develop more in the coming weeks, especially as we get to Genesis 3. But, but you understand it. You get it. You, you, you've experienced it. Sin separates. It separates you from God. Taken to its end, sin brings death. When we are left in our sin, it will ultimately bring death and a permanent separation from God and all things good. Let's look back at John 3.16. Just listen to these words. I mentioned it as a reference earlier in your notes. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. With Jesus, you are brought back into life, a life that is forevermore. You are able to get back to the holy work that God has created you for. This can only be done when you repent and turn away from your sin and follow Jesus, letting Him be the Lord of your life. Let Jesus be the ruler of your heart, mind, mind, and actions. I'll invite the worship team to come back up. We're going to sing in a moment a song of invitation. If you want to talk more about what it means to follow Jesus, to know that power that is in his blood, this is the time for you to come forward and to speak with me or to pray. You're welcome to pray there at your seat, silently. If you've ever wondered about your purpose or God's love for you, This is a time for you to to pray to God. You were created to be loved by God, and you were created to do holy work alongside him. You can experience both when you follow Jesus. Will you follow Jesus today? You stand as we pray. God, we thank you that you are creator. You are our maker. You are the sustainer. You are with us. You created us to be loved by you and to do holy work with you. Help us to see that in your word. Help us to see that as we look at the world around us. Help us to put our purpose into action. Forgive us when we fail you. Forgive us because sin separates us. Thank you for Jesus and the power that is in his blood that brings us back to you. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.